Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Nothing you desire compares to her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. So let's talk about those questions I posed one more time. Is there a God? I'm sure we would all concur. And has he spoken and revealed himself? To us? The answer is yes. He has revealed himself to us and he's done so in many ways. In Hebrews 1 and chapters 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son, who be appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. God's spoken to us in many ways. And these many ways come in two different types of revelation. We have what's called general revelation. And there's different forms of this general revelation. Creation is a form of general revelation. The Bible says that one could look at the created world. You could look at what God has made and deduce that there is a creator and that he is wonderful. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. See that creation shows God's power to create out of nothing. Next, nihilo is the, the theological term. God created the entire universe out of nothing. He just spoke it into existence. What kind of power is that? That's a, a power like this world has never seen. It's a transcendent power. But we can look at the universe and, and see that whoever created it, however it came into being, it was through tremendous power. And creation shows God's wisdom. If you even take a human being and, and you break us down to the molecular level, you're going to discover that God displayed great wisdom in the way he created us. The psalmist says that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. There's no way we could have simply evolved into what we are today. Another form of this general revelation is the conscience. God has placed an inward witness inside of every human being that testifies to the reality of God. Romans 2, 14 and 15 speaks of this conscience. Paul says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The inward conscience is bearing witness to the fact that there is a God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. He's left this void to know that there's something more than this time and space that we live in. And, and, and that's the eternal realm in which God dwells. And in reality, all people know that there's a God. 
But then why don't they believe? Why are there atheists and agnostics if everybody knows there's a God? Well, Romans 1.18 is clear. They suppress that truth and unrighteousness, and they live a lie instead. But the fact is, is that even though people don't always respond to it the way they should, the conscience is an inward witness that God has put in every person that testifies to the fact that he exists and deserves our allegiance. Another form of general revelation is history. We can look at the history of the world, especially the Jewish people, and see that there is a God who is sovereign over the events of history. It's in history that God's providence and, and God's goodness is on display. We see God caring for the just and the unjust. We see God being good to all people. Jesus says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. While nature, the conscience, and history all reveal the fact that God exists, they are inadequate without special revelation of his word. God's special revelation of his word informs us how God created the natural world. God's righteous law bears witness to our conscience that we need to get right with God. And God's word informs us that God is sovereignly working out his drama of redemption in this world. So without God's word, those other three forms of revelation would be incomplete. We, we wouldn't be able to get as much out of them as God wants us to. So while we can deduce that God exists from creation, the conscience and history, our knowledge of God will be incomplete without the revelation of his word. Have you ever asked yourself this? What about those people that live in a place, say Timbuktu, where they've never heard the gospel? No one's ever come and told them about how Jesus, who Jesus is and how to get saved. God can't really send them to hell, can he? That wouldn't be fair. I'm sure we've all asked that question ourselves or been asked that by somebody else. Well, I believe that God will be fair when he judges these people to hold them accountable for what has been revealed to them. The problem is, is they're not worshiping the creator God that the creation testifies to. No, they're worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and the four-footed beasts. And the Bible says that God will not share his glory with another. Think about it. If they were able to be saved without being told who Jesus is, Sending missionaries to them would be the most cruel thing you could do in the world. Yet Jesus told us to go forth and make disciples of all nations, to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. God's not going to be okay with them worshiping the creation instead of the creator. That's why we need to go to them. That's why we need special revelation. People cannot be saved apart from special revelation. Yeah, you could look at the sun and the moon and the stars and say, yeah, there's a God who created them, but it's not going to tell you anything about how to get right with that God, how to have your sins forgiven, how to be in heaven, how to be reconciled to God. That's why Paul says this in Romans 10, in verse 5, he says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? 
the word is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, who believe, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then will they call upon him? If they have not believed, and how will they believe in him? If they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all eat the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. You hear that faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. We don't find the words of Christ in nature. Our consciences and history don't tell us the words of Christ. We need special revelation. Meaning if God never revealed his plan of salvation through the Bible, then nobody in the history of the world would have ever been able to believe in him, much less confess him to others. So special revelation is needed. It is very important. Because it shows us, first of all, the fullness of who God is. We would have an incomplete view of who God is without the Bible. It also shows us how to be redeemed from God's wrath towards sinners. And thirdly, it tells us how to live and please God. Now, this special revelation, it comes to us in a few different forms. One is, I'll call it theophanies. There's times in the Bible and in history where God appears and speaks directly to a person. God appeared to Moses in the bush, right, the burning bush, and Moses didn't have any revelations of the Bible. He didn't have any writings about who God was. God just appeared to him and spoke to him, revealing himself and his will for Moses to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. God appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees and told him, hey, get up. Leave, go to Canaan. Another form of special revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Word of God incarnate. He is the revelation of God. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the first form of all creation. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, the verse we're going to see a few times, says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He then, or when he made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty you see that he's the exact, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, the writer of Hebrews says. But the last form of special revelation is the Bible. This is what we're going to focus our time on tonight. 
And in Psalm 19, in verses 7 through 11, we see how this special revelation, we see why the Bible is better than or superior to general revelation. In Psalm 19, it says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. What is one of the most desirable things in creation? Something that people are always looking for. It's gold, right? I mean, that's how California became a state, was because of the gold rush. Everybody coming and looking for gold. And here, David is saying that God's word is more desirable than even gold. Even the most precious jewels of creation, God's word is more precious than and superior to. That's because in the scriptures, in the Bible, we see the, the mind of God. We see the ways of God. We see the righteousness of God. We see how man can please God. The scriptures, they're superior because they're, they're specific, they're, they're verbal. They tell us exactly what God wants us to say. The scriptures are a written revelation from God through his apostles and prophets and thereby forever settled witness to an unchanging God. But before we get into things like inspiration and inerrancy and sufficiency and authority, I want to make it clear to us where this source of revelation comes from. Look at Hebrews 1.1 again. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways. God is the source of all revelation. It starts with God. It comes from God. Apart from God, we wouldn't know any of it. So for letter A, fill in the word inspired. The Bible was inspired by God. A couple of verses I'm going to share regarding inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. See, these two verses testify to the fact that the Scriptures were inspired by God. That they're God-breathed. That men were moved along by God to write these Scriptures. But what's meant by inspiration? What does this word inspiration mean? Uh, theologians have come up with many different ideas and ways to explain inspiration. A lot of them are, are wrong. And in fact, I want to take a look at a few of the wrong ways to look at inspiration, because I think as we do that, it'll really help us to understand what inspiration really is. 
the, the first wrong way to see inspiration is the dictation theory of inspiration. The dictation theory of inspiration basically says that God downloaded the words into the prophet's minds, and the prophet simply recorded verbatim what God downloaded. It's like they're a data transmitter. They're like a, a, a USB drive that you just plug in and the data just transfers from one device to another. They're basically a pin in God's hand recording what God said. In this, the human author is reduced to an instrument. That's it. Now, that's true that there's instances in the Bible where God gives this kind of dictation. He gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai in this manner. And on Patmos, he spoke to Paul, or I'm sorry, John this way when he gave him the, the letters to the seven churches. He told them exactly what to write, and they just wrote it down verbatim. However, this can't be the way that the entire Bible was delivered, because if it was, we would read it, and every letter would be consistent in its style, would be consistent in its vocabulary throughout, it would be void of any individual style, it would be void of any individual author's language. I like what John MacArthur says concerning this. He says the key argument against mechanical dictation is that every book of the Bible exhibits clear evidence of the writer's personality. Every book has a different character and a way of expressing itself. Every author has a different style. God could have exclusively used dictation and given the truth that way. In fact, he didn't really need to use men at all. But the writing of the Bible features variations in style. It displays variations in language and vocabulary. From author to author, their distinct personalities shine through. One can even feel the human author's emotions as they pour out God's word on paper. Listen to how Paul starts Romans chapter nine. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you feel Paul's emotions there? He's wishing that he would be cut off so that his kinsmen according to the flesh would be saved. He's willing to give up his own salvation so that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, could know who God is. He's filled with much grief and sorrow. It's full of personal emotion. This isn't something that's just downloaded or dictated from God. But how can the Bible be the words of both God and human authors? This is a complex question, but I, I think it has a rather simple answer, and that's providence. Providence. God made the authors of the Bible who he wanted them to be and orchestrated the events of their life in a way so that when they wrote, they wrote from their own heart, but penned the very words of God. Their words are their words, but their lives have been so framed by God that when they say their words, they're actually saying the words of God. You say, this is too much for me. How could these impure, sinful vessels deliver the pure, unadulterated word of God? 
wouldn't it have gotten corrupted through them? What about Mary? How could she deliver the pure person of God in the flesh? Wouldn't if he have gotten corrupted going through sinful Mary? But no, he came through an imperfect vessel, the perfect son of God. Then there's the partial or conceptual theory of inspiration. This theory says that God put the concept into the writer's hearts, but let them be free to express it however they wish. Let them be free to use their own words. This is a favorite of the neo-evangelicals today because it gives them room to claim that the Bible has errors. They say the concepts are true, but the way that they're expressed and the words in it might be errors because the human authors could have and presumably did make mistakes since they're fallen human beings. However, this goes against the clear testimony of Scripture. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, The sum of your word is true, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul, writing to young Timothy, says, Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Scripture's own testimony is that it is truth. So it can't be that the concepts are true, but the words are wrong or, or, or wrongly expressed in this concept theory of inspiration. Besides that, God's pretty clear in the scriptures that people who add to or take from his word are in a very dangerous place, that <laughs> that's not a very good thing to do. And I don't see how that could coincide with this view that God just gave concepts to the writers and allowed them to express it in whatever way they wished. And hey, there might be errors here or there, but the general concepts of it are true. No, it seems like God cares about every single word that is written in his scriptures. Scripture confirms inspiration the word level when it says that every word of God is tested in Proverbs 30 verse 5. And then there's the natural theory of inspiration. This teaches that the, the authors found inspiration not from God, but really from themselves. They're like gifted artists that have been inspired in their masterpieces. The biblical writers were inspired in writing the Bible. They had great spiritual insight through their sensitivity and giftedness. This caused their writings to have this inspired quality. Now the objections to this should be obvious. It validates our clear teaching that God authored the Bible. It violates 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scriptures God breathed. It violates 1 Timothy 1, or 2 Timothy 1.20, where it says that the Prophets didn't speak on their own, but they were carried along, moved along by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. Further, it seems unlikely to me that men would come up with the teaching of the Bible. What sophisticated person would come up with this religious system that damns everybody to hell unless that they're born from above 
in this experience that they have no control over. It makes no sense. It seems like fallen man would come up with a religious system that their own works, their own merit could achieve a righteousness that would bring them salvation. In fact, that's what every single man-made religion teaches. If you leave man to himself to create some kind of system of religion, he's going to come up with a works-based system. And the Bible is the complete opposite of that. It says there's nothing that you can do to be made right with God. You have to have something done to you. You have to be born from above. And there's nothing you could do to make that happen. It's, a, it's an act of God. So to say that this was just kind of inspired by fallen men who had some kind of inspirational writing makes no sense. But now we have the biblical view, which is verbal plenary inspiration. And, and the biblical view teaches that God, by his spirit, inspired each and every word penned by the authors of the 66 books of the Bible in their original autographs. It refers to the direct act of God on human authors which produced perfectly written revelation. It conveys this mysterious work of the Holy Spirit by where he used individual personality, language, style, historical context of each writer to produce divinely authoritative writings. These works were truly the product of both human author and the Holy Spirit. It's the work of a divine superintendence. God produced the scriptures by influencing the human author's thoughts. This resulted in perfect and authoritative word of God being recorded in the original autographs. Now this process is varied. Sometimes God, or sometimes they wrote direct dictation from God like Moses did. Sometimes they spoke spoke of specific experiences like David did in the Psalms. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, they're speaking of specific experiences that David had when he was stuck in sin and with Bathsheba and, and the prophet Nathan came and confronted him and he finally dealt with the sin and he's writing about the experience of that sin. And sometimes the authors spoke of the, their general life experiences, but in a general way. This is what David did with Psalm 23. He's just looking back at his life in general, reflecting on everything that God is for him and everything God's provided for him. And he expresses that in Psalm 23. Some wrote eyewitness testimony. Matthew and John, they write their gospels based on eyewitness testimony. They're writing exactly what they saw. And some got their material from visions and dreams, like John on Patmos. And the way they recorded these thoughts varied as well. Some recorded them themselves. Some, like Jeremiah, had their assistants record them. Paul, even his own writings were varied. Some of it he wrote himself. Some of it he used in, in, in Eustace. Uh, and some he wrote just the last part of it because he wanted to make sure that people knew that he wrote it. His signature was on it. All this to say that the means of inspiration are varied, the means of recording varied, but the result was the same. We always got the inspired word of God from the prophets of God. 2 Samuel 23.2, this is a great verse speaking of the inspiration of scripture. David says this, he says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. 
and his word was on my tongue. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. In 2 Peter 1.21, let's look at that again. It says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men were moved around, along, or moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That word moved along by the Spirit is the same word that's used twice in Acts 27. And it speaks of a ship being moved along by the wind. And I think this is the perfect illustration of what inspiration is. The pneuma, the wind or the Spirit moved the writers to write, but they still had to write the same way that the captain had to direct the ship. It wasn't God just forcefully making them do something. They still had to write. They're still writing from their own experience. They're using their own thought, their own character. Just like if the captain isn't steering the ship and guiding it, people aren't rowing and things like that, you know, it doesn't matter how much wind is going to be blown if the sails aren't up. It takes both. I like the way B.D. Warfield expressed this idea. He said, explaining that God's preparation of the human authors was physical, intellectual, spiritual, which must have attended them throughout their whole lives, and indeed must have had its beginning in their remote ancestors, and the effect of which was to bring the right men to the right places at the right time with the right endowments, impulses, acquirements, to write just the books which were designed for them. So we looked at what inspiration is, and how it works. Now let's look at a few evidences for God's inspiration of the Bible. Over 380 times, 3,800 times, I'm sorry, the Old Testament claims to be the Word of God. In Ezra 9.4, it says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. In Psalm 119, 24 times the scripture is called the Word of the Lord. The prophets would routinely say things like, hear the words of the Lord, or thus saith the Lord. The Old Testament evidences show that the prophets spoke for the Lord. Listen to this. And, uh, remember when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush there in the desert? And Moses is like, hey, I can't go. I'm a, I'm a guy who stutters and somebody else. And God's finally like, getting angry with them. He's like, fine, your brother Aaron could go. This is what it says. It says, moreover, he, Aaron, shall speak for you to the people, and he will be your mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. Moses is going to tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron's going to say it to the people. He's going to be the conduit of that truth. And that's a great picture of the way inspiration works. God will say something to the prophet, and the prophet will speak it to the people. How about the New Testament? The New Testament gives clear inspiration, clear evidences of the inspiration for the Old Testament. In Isaiah seven fourteen, right, a great Christmas passage. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold. A virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, 
Now in Matthew chapter one, it says, now all this took place, the birth of Jesus, the whole circumstances to bring about the birth of Christ, all that took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Old Testament events like the destruction of Sodom and the flood are spoken of as historical facts in the New Testament. Even minor details like David eating the showbread are spoken of by Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen's on trial before the Sanhedrin and he is uh, preaching to these Jewish men, this Supreme Court of Israel. And he's reciting the history of the Israeli people. And he's basically reciting the Old Testament, speaking of it as historical fact, speaking of it as true. Jesus, he, he quoted all five books of the Pentateuch. He's quoted from all five books of Moses. He quoted the prophets, eight different songs he quoted. In other words, he quoted from every division of the Hebrew Bible. He quoted from the law, the prophets, and the writings, giving validity to the inspiration of the Old Testament. We could go on and on about these evidences, but we need to move on. I spend a lot of time on inerrancy because that's the most important. It all starts with inerrancy. If we could prove inerrancy, if we could prove that the Bible came from God, then all the others kind of fall in place. But that's the most important is to start there. And, Establish that fact that God has spoken, and what we have here truly is the Word of God. But for letter B, fill in the word inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Follow the logic with me. The Bible comes from God. It's inspired. God is perfect. God can't lie. Therefore, the revelation of his Word must be perfect and without error. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It's inherent. It's without error. It's 100% truth. Now, you might be asking, how come there's so many different versions of the Bible? They can't all be right. Well, the Bible's Inerrant, it's an original autographs. Now it's possible that a scribe made a mistake and you know, missed a word or misspelled a word or put the wrong word. It's also possible that the translators of the Bible got it wrong and came up with a bad translation. And, and one of the translations you're looking at isn't necessarily the best way to translate a word or a phrase. However, we have over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, <coughs> some going back as far as within 50 years of the apostles. That's overwhelming evidence to the Word of God. And on top of that, if we think about where this Word was being ministered to the people that Paul was talking to, the, these New Testament authors, they spoke Greek, they spoke Hebrew. These are people that deeply wanted to know God's Word. Most of them were religious people who had huge sections of the Old Testament memorized. 
the verses were wrong. If it would have been spoken wrong, they would have noticed. For instance, if they were to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, and it stands out. But for God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm sure those two verses, like, alarms went off in your head. You're like, heresy, no, that's wrong. That's what the Mormon said. You know, that, that that's not right. Well, that's exactly how the people in those cultures would have heard this if it was if it was wrong. Even one word. Think about this. Have you ever read the Pledge of Allegiance? I sat down and read the words of it. Now imagine I start reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, but I, I say it wrong. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic of China which it stands, <laughs> one nation, under Allah, right? Because we know that's wrong. We, we, you've never read the Pledge of Allegiance. You don't have it in front of you. But you've heard it so many times, it's ingrained in your mind that you could spot that error. And I guarantee you, these people in the synagogues that Paul would have came in and started preaching the, the word wrong, they would have spotted it in a heartbeat. But we got ample evidence. Like I said, over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, some going back within 50 years of the writers. You know what's number two for the most amount of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts? It's Homer, the Odyssey. And probably written around 762 BC. And you know what the oldest manuscript of that is? 980. In 1,600 years. There's people that were, you know, was written within 50 years of, of the time that the apostles wrote. What's more likely to be true? There's an estimated 300 manuscripts of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And Homer's the most preserved writing outside of the Bible. So if you're not willing to take the Bible as fact based on the evidences and the witness that we have, you can't take any ancient documents as being true. If you're going to be consistent in your logic and your thinking. So yeah, there might be a few differences in the translations. But when you look at the original autographs, there's more than enough evidence to show us that this is the word of God. Letter C, the word of God is sufficient revelation. This speaks of the fact that the Word of God has all that we need. We don't need any further revelation than the 66 books of the Bible, which have been once delivered to the saints. 2 Timothy 2.15 again, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. In other words, in order to accurately handle the word of truth, we need to be diligent about it. If we are diligent studying the Bible, we'll get through it like that. What's my name does not need to be ashamed. We don't need any extra books. We don't need any extra teaching. We don't need any extra revelation to be a workman who does not need to be ashamed. 
We don't need the, the watchtowers or the, the writings of Ellen G. White or papal instruction. The Bible has what we need. John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you slave, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father who made me to you. He didn't hold back anything. He declared everything that was important to the disciples. There's no more need for revelation. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? How the rich man had an easy earth and Lazarus was poor and sick and was just sitting there begging for bread. They both die. And Lazarus goes to a place called Abraham's bosom and he's in comfort. And then there's this, this chasm between that and, and a place of torment where the rich man goes. And the rich man ends up asking Lazarus would be raised from the dead as a witness to his brothers so that they wouldn't need to come to this place of torment too. It's like, hey, raise him from the dead. Send him to my brothers. I have five brothers. I don't want them to come to this place of torment that I'm in. Maybe if someone raises from the dead, they'll believe is the idea. Listen to what Jesus says. Luke 16, 31, he says, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if a person rises from the dead. The word of God was a more sufficient revelation for salvation than even a resurrection miracle, Jesus is saying. The, the law of Moses is going to do more for getting people in heaven than even someone raising from the dead and testifying to who God is. That speaks a lot for the sufficiency of Scripture. Letter D. And then the Bible is authoritative. So it's inspired. It comes from God. Because it comes from God, we can trust that it's true, that it's perfect, that it has no errors, and that it's everything that we need, that it has it's sufficient. We don't need any more. But it's also authoritative. The Bible has authority. It has authority over our theology, our view of who God is. It has authority over the way that we live our lives, the way that we structure our churches, and the way that our family should live. It has authority on when life begins, on what gender and sexual issues, and what the role of government should be. The Bible is the ultimate authority on everything because it's inspired and inerrant and sufficient it's the authoritative word of God. It's, it's God's word on everything. And, and it's true, God doesn't give us you know, exactly what to do in, in every instance. Right? But he speaks in general terms, so to speak, that could be applied to any situation. We, we could take what he says and apply it to situations today. You know, the apostles didn't go through everything that we're going through. They didn't have technology like we have. They didn't know how to use it to honor God and things like that. But we could take the principles that they gave us in our life to the use of technology. So for everything that we're going to go through, go through everything that happens in our life, God has authoritatively spoken 
you need to apply that to our life. Letter E on this one. The Bible needs illumination. The Bible needs illumination. This is answering the question, why don't the heathen believe? Fallen man trust the scriptures. Remember when Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples? In Matthew 16, it says, The king of the Caesarea Philippi, he's asking his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Some, some said he's John the Baptist, other Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Peter says, But then he says to them, Who do you say I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjana, for flesh and blood, human beings didn't reveal that to you. Father was in heaven. He got it from divine inspiration, divine illumination. And, and that's how we get all biblical truths, is from divine illumination. You see, the problem is, is that it, it's not that the natural man can't read this, the, the sinner can't pick up the Bible and read it and, and understand it. But the, the problem is, is that it's against their nature. The problem is, is that they, they're, they're hostile to the things of God. You see, th these are spiritual things. Jesus says that my word is spirit and life. And the natural man isn't spiritual, he's carnal. And so the words of God, the revelation of God, is in direct hostility to the carnal man. They're in opposition to each other. So they're not going to choose it. You see, God has to come in and, and, and do something to that natural man. Given the ability to be able to understand this spiritual revelation. It's like this. Imagine we're in this room and we have a pile of salmon over here and a pile of carrots over here. And we let a grizzly bear in. And we don't interrupt it. We don't influence it in any way. Where is the grizzly bear going to go? Is it going to go to the carrots or is it going to go to the salmon? It's going to go to the salmon because that's its nature. We could bring in a rabbit, and it's going to go to the carrots because that's its nature. And the nature of the natural man isn't for spiritual things. It's for carnal things. So it's not going to receive the Spirit of God unless God moves. God does something. That's why in John 6 it says, No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And it is written in the prophets that they shall be part of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by these taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, for he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? For he hath the mind of Christ because of the Spirit, illuminating the word of Christ in our heart. Amen? 
So we have the Bible, and we can trust that it is the inspired word of God. That it's inerrant, it's perfect, that it doesn't contain error, that it is 100% true. And because of that, we can trust that it's sufficient, that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness and his word. And it's authoritative that whatever situation we're in, we can trust that the Bible in some way speaks of it and gives us authoritative direction and how to handle that truth. And we can trust that God, Spirit, is illuminating the text to us, helping us understand it, helping us to apply it to our life, and helping us to live it out. Amen? So God, we do thank you for your word and all that it is for us, Lord, and we acknowledge the fact that we're not as faithful with it as we would like to be. So I pray that you give us a, a new hunger, a new thirst for your word. Lord, I pray that we would see it as the psalmist does, is better than gold, better than the dripping of the honeycomb, the sweetest things here on earth, Lord, and, and, and that we would you know, desire it more than those things. Help us to understand it. I pray that we would illuminate to our hearts and our minds Allow us to walk in it, Lord, and, and maybe people that proclaim it to those around us. We love you, and we commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.